Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. My guest this week is Dr. Sap Wright from the Napoleonic channel on YouTube. And of course, this week, and then leading up, to the premiere of the Napoleon movie, where they were going to discuss the life of Napoleon. And of course, they will have to discuss the elephant in the room, which is a movie that's coming out, which is why we don't, are doing this. And so what is your expectations? Let's begin straight away to the movie. We spoke a little bit about this on Twitter, but give us your view of what, you know what Ridley Scott is like when it comes to historical epics, but still, what is your expectations? Well, we we also now that according to Ridley Scott, people like me are basically wasting our lives because um, you don't need to bother with history because none of us were there, so we can all just make it up mm-hmm. as we go along. If folks aren't familiar, the context to that sass is Ridley Scott did an interview with Dan Snow on History Hit. You can catch it on YouTube, um, in which he basically said that um, of the four hundred books that have been written about Napoleon. Only the first two of anything that's worth mm. reading, which shows a catastrophic lack of understanding of what historians actually do. But we'll park that. And then when Dan um, flagged up the Austerlitz scene, which we'll probably end up talking about in the second mm. instalment, um, he he asked Ridley, um, what do you say to historians who turn around and say, yeah, but that's not how it happened, because there's a whole mythologizing around the smashing of the lakes, which, as I say, we'll talk about another time. Um, and Ridley turned around and said, well, just turn to them and say, were you there? No. Right. Well, fine. Um, which seems like a bit of a dumb comment on, on two scores, because firstly, well, neither were you Ridley. So why are you any better placed by that logic? Um, but equally, the whole point of what historians do is we go and find the accounts of the people who were there, which is the next best thing to talking to the people who were there, given that they'd been dead for about 200 years. So it is mm. quite difficult to communicate with them directly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of my expectation for the film, I started out with high hopes. I have been banging the the drum the whole way on that kind of line of it's going to be historically inaccurate. That's a given because it's a film. It's not there yeah. to be accurate. It's there to entertain. And I think it will be entertaining. My hope is that it will fire people up about the period and make them tune into shows like Mm. this, you know, pick up a book, listen to a podcast, watch a YouTube video, whatever it is that you do, just go beyond the film. And for heaven's sake, don't take to the social media platforms and start pretending that because you've watched Ridley Scott's Napoleon, Mm. you suddenly are the voice of all knowledge when it comes Mm. to the Napoleonic Wars. And to bring up the point, uh, for anyone who read history or has been spoken about this again, 
uh, who knows history, the, if you know that the first accounts are definitely not the best, the analogy of Roman historians, to, for example, let's say Tacitus or Cassius Dio or anyone of those, they are obviously going to be biased. So the, so the, the more or less, and I think in most, more or less recent times that people, historians have become less and less biased and trying to, more recent books are actually better. And, and again, to get another comparison, ancient Egypt, for example, if you read early books, there's so much new material that we know about the history of Egypt that we that wasn't available in the first few books that are missing. So you know, the, the further away you get, actually better the books will be. And and to say maybe comment that the first books are the best ones to read, but no, that's not the case at all. No, absolutely. Um, there is a, a certain inverted commas art. So some academics love to kind of emphasize the fact that oh, history has a muse fine whatever but mm. the, the point is there is a there's a skill base to being a historian that's why it takes years of study at university to acquire those mm. skills and so the you point probably is, think that Gibbon is the ultimate guide to um, the fall of Rome but uh, that's the, but this girl's the real opponent now I mean the, yeah I, I mean the, the, the one thing that to... I would just add in yeah. is you know turning around and saying oh, it's only worth reading the two books, is a little bit like turning around and saying, well, I've seen one film about the Romans, so mm. I don't need to go and watch Gladiator now. It, yeah. it just doesn't compute. It's, it's just completely yeah. wrong. Yeah. So, of course, Napoleon is the one we're going to discuss here. And I want to begin with a little bit history of Corsica first, because Napoleon, as we discussed, he is, will be obsessed with the history of Corsica. And, but because Corsica was... I don't know... But not quite sure how the situation was because I'm not quite sure if they were independent or part of Italy, but they they were not part of France until right before Napoleon's time when they were ruled by Paoli, but which again became a Napoleonic obsession. So let's talk a little bit about Corsica, where he would be born and raised, and of course until the French takeover of Corsica. Yeah, so Corsica, for folks who aren't familiar with the geography, Ireland in the Mediterranean, um, kind of, if you were to draw a line sort of diagonally um, southeast from France, it'll sort of start, it'll eventually kind of go through Corsica if you find the right point, north of Sardinia. So that's the, the neck of the woods that we're talking about. It's actually owned by Genoa, so it's a Genoese island, mm. but there's this sort of long history of resistance. It's quite a sort of semi-independent fiercely kind of nationalistic is probably a, a difficult word to to use at this time because nationalism still kind of the, the idea of nationalism mm -hmm. still kind of developing but you get what I, I'm kind of getting at here they have that sense of self mm -hmm. um, as you say you talked about one of the big guys within the Corsican independence Paoli there um, becomes a, a leading light um, Napoleon's dad is initially um, quite close to Paoli. Napoleon idolizes Paoli um, for for much of his life. Um, but there, there's a change. I mean, we're we're talking about a Genoese colony. So how does Napoleon kind of become French? Well, basically, the French buy it. Well, they buy it off the Genoese uh, the year before Napoleon's born, and then they have to conquer the place because the the um, Corsicans kind of turn around and go, "Well, this is our opportunity." You know, now we're not under the kosh from the Genoese. So now is the opportunity to, <coughs> excuse me, to um, assert this this independence movement whilst 
you know, you've got that instability and uncertainty of the handover of power. The French, <laughs> excuse me, conquer the place. Um, and Napoleon's dad then makes a difficult choice. He can continue to side with this sort of outcast independence movement that's effectively shot its bolt and failed, or he can ingratiate himself with the French hierarchy. And we're talking when it comes to um, Carlo Bonaparte, uh, he's a minor Italian nobleman. So he's in that level of society where he knows people and he can be quite useful to the new French regime. And so he capitalizes on that. And as a result of that, he is then able to benefit from a um, decree that enables the sons of minor, and it's important to emphasize minor aristocracy, to then be sent to France for education. And eventually um, Napoleon ends up at the Ecole Royale Militaire um, at, the, at the age of just nine. <laughs> where, ironically, he's told that he might make quite a good sailor. So that would have been very different had Napoleon kind of opted for that line. Um, mm. But yeah, the, the Corsican um, independence movement rumbles on for quite a long time, and Napoleon is absolutely obsessed with this. It's part of the reason that he's so unpopular when he goes to school, because he's reading all about Corsican independence, he's writing about Corsican independence, he's handing these kind of documents to his teachers going what do you think and everyone's kind of going why are you so obsessed with Corsican independence it's French France owns it you're here on the the say so of the king on the king's dime what are you doing um mm. so it, it does lead to him being kind of ostracized and the the phrase that tends to be used about Napoleon is that he's conceived Italian born Corsican and was French effectively when it suited. Because it's not until the rejection from Paoli, where the Bonaparte family literally has to cut and run, they're literally fleeing over the mountains, have to bundle themselves into a ship and sail back to the French mainland, that then Napoleon properly throws his lot in with France and becomes kind of French. But he he retains that Corsican ancestry for a lot of his life, for much of his career, he's signing a buona parte, a much more Italian um, spelling. And he has that thick Corsican accent the whole way through his life. In fact, during the Italian campaigns, he's able to converse with the locals um, in the local dialect. And he's able to pass himself off as Italian in order to um, kind of surreptitiously get intel from a couple of Austrian officers on one occasion. So he's 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 very much kind of died in the wool Corsican up until the moment when it's clear that he's not going to get anywhere by pursuing this kind of Corsican line. Uh, I want to begin with his upbringing, and Alison Snow, Dan Snow as well, made this comment that he was, came from, in the, in the advertising, they said he came from nothing and they conquered everything. But... And then, as you spoke about Dan Snow, still made a joke that he was privileged. But and yes, he was in a way because they were nobles, as we discussed, his family. But again, they were poor. They weren't rich, so they weren't really that much more privileged. The only thing that, as he was able to, as we talked about, it, become a military have a military career was because he was noble, and that's really the only privilege that he had. Other than that, they didn't have much money to go on, and they were. 
living in poverty pretty much up to, until he became the emperor. So he wasn't that much privileged that some people make it out to be. He was really more normal, to put it that way. The only real privilege he had was the title nobility. That didn't mean that you were rich by any chance. I mean, all things are, are relative in this, right? So he doesn't compare to some of his marshals who literally crawl out of the, the inverted commas, peasant class. Um, mm. So if you were a peasant, or actually even if you were part of the sort of business class or the clerical class within French society, you would look at Napoleon and still kind of acknowledge him as somebody who had a relatively privileged upbringing you know this guy gets mm. his education for free and that education sets him up the whole reason behind this is to set these people up so they become good members of good standing of french society who the french king can rely on you know it's trying to foster that loyalty so he has that leg up sure it, it's not you know it, it's important it's to emphasize it's minor nobility it's minor aristocracy it is not as though you know he's living in some palace on the island of Corsica, you can go in and see um, the building where he's born. And it's a very nondescript um, building. It, it's just very plain and it's it's part of um, a series of flats now. It's it's not much to look at at all. You know, the the family is relatively poor because the the, the nature of Corsica is that it's not a lavishly rich island. Um, his mother seems to have been quite a formidable woman by many stretches um <clears throat> we could do a po whole podcast on her quite frankly um mm -hmm. she she quite kind of a severe matriarch um gave them um a kind of a, a, a decent upbringing certainly the family did as best they could but equally you know he's not dining off of gold platters every night and sort of eating venison and all the rest of it um i think I mean, with eight words, Ridley Scott, you know, he came from nothing, he conquered everything. Ridley Scott immediately kind of taps straight into the vein of that dominant Napoleonic myth, a kind of rags to riches, very mm. seductive myth that has some truth to it. But equally, you, you can overplay it in both directions. You know, you can pretend that he was destitute and a peasant, or you can pretend that actually he was from that ultimate upper echelon of society and that wasn't the case you know this is another reason why he was unpopular in military academy because well you're a son of corsican nobility please you know i'm my father is the comte de insert long french name here you know beauchamp bar Bouha, mm. whatever um my french is appalling as you probably worked out um and so in the pecking order he's nothing and he knows that um, and ironically, it's the revolution that gives him the opportunity, because otherwise he would have been destined for a career of mediocrity. His position wasn't going to give him rapid promotion up through the ranks in the French army as it was pre-1789. But equally, he's got a hell of a lot more of a head start than somebody who's enlisting as a trooper in the French cavalry during this time. And we don't have much time to go into him, but 
as as Bernardo, we would wait a bit from a key figure in defeat in Napoleon, just to mention him for a brief second. He was a peasant soldier, and he, if it wasn't for the revolution, he would never become more than a peasant soldier because you know you couldn't become an officer if you were a peasant born. But because of the revolution, Bernardo would later, and sorry, we don't have much time to discuss him, and he's an episode in itself again. But he was able to climb the ranks to a general because of the revolution. Absolutely. You've got a, a lot of stories of people going from inverted commas, nothing to hugely significant positions in French society. I mean, you look at somebody like Murat, he's destined to be a cleric, if I remember rightly. I mean, that, there's a hilarious concept in itself. Um, mm. Murat, part of the clergy, really? Um, I'm not sure they really do but kind of like a line in in ostrich feathers in, in clerical garb, but, you know, never mind. Um, so you've got a lot of people who are, are doing this because the revolution creates opportunity. And one of the things that Napoleon does is he continues that notion that dedicated service and competence mm. will result in reward. It's one of the, the one of the great positives of his career. But in terms of the Napoleonic Game of Thrones, as I sometimes call it, Bernadotte's the winner. Because if you look at the Bernadotte dynasty, to this day, it sits on the throne of Sweden, mm. whereas Napoleon's mm. dynasty, of course, crumbles come 1815. Mm. So let's talk about this time in the military academy, because he was quite a good mathematician, which you had to be if you wanted to become an officer. And I still believe you do have to be a good ma- mathematician if you want to become an officer to this day. But he was quite really a good mathematician. And he did. The, he, the, so I want to talk a little bit about his career in, or not career, but in the beginning in the military academy and the training. Of to becoming an officer. Yeah, I mean, he he dedicates himself to his studies. Um, he's a nerd fundamentally. Um, something that you a lot of your listeners hopefully can kind of identify with and respect. Mm. You know, he's somebody who throws himself into his studies. There are two ways of thinking about that. One is that you know he realizes his situation, and he knows that um, if he's going to get anywhere in life he's going to have to work a hell of a lot harder than these entitled sons of um counts who are um his his classmates and his contemporaries because of patronage systems mm. you know it's it's what you know far sorry it's far less the case of what you know rather than who you know and and he knows that so that's one reason why we can speculate as to why he dedicates himself so much another is he was unpopular for a the variety of reasons that we've talked about already he faced a lot of bigotry and snobbishness and so if you find yourself ostracized from the the inverted commas social groups what you're going to do with your time well for a lot of folks and there'll be a lot of listeners i'd imagine who um found themselves in similar positions what you do is you dedicate yourself to your studies sometimes you you find your niche and he absolutely found that he was Somebody who you mentioned mathematics, it was pretty obvious that he could have should have gone into the artillery. So he did um, in the fullness of time. And what's also quite interesting is what he's reading during this period. So he spends a lot of time reading about people like Caesar and Alexander the Great, um, writing about them as well um, and starting to kind of formulate this idea of inverted commas, great men of history and looking at ways in which they can be emulated. Um, so when you put that alongside the Corsican independence thing, there's a curious kind of disconnect in that 
he's got this strand where he's thinking about people who go and forge great empires. And yet he's also focused on a comparatively small island in the Mediterranean and just kind of making that island independent. So it's very easy to then sort of draw a direct line from, oh, Napoleon's reading about Caesar. Napoleon's reading about Alexander the Great. He's inspired by them. Sure, he is inspired by them, but that doesn't therefore mean that, you know, you you can draw that direct line in in terms of his life arc. Um, I suspect Ashley Ridley Scott will draw that direct line if indeed he bothers to um, There is a line about the world in the footstep of Napoleon and Alexander in the latest trailer, I think. Yeah, again, it sort of taps into this idea. It's a very easy line to to talk about right you you, Mm. there are and this is a a line that the ultra pro napoleon crowd like to to push quite a lot you know there are certain people whose names you instantly know who you're talking about it's alexander caesar Mm. napoleon you know we don't say wellington and immediately everybody knows Mm. who you're talking about you don't say you don't suddenly mistake alexander for Tsar Alexander, for example, do you? You mm. instantly think Alexander the Great. Yeah. And in terms of military conquest, there's no question Napoleon was hugely successful. So it's very easy to kind of tap into those mm. those arguments and go, look, this is one of the great men, inverted commas, of history. Let's stick him up on a pedestal. But the challenge, of course, is that once you've done that, you've stripped yourself of objectivity because you're going to go, here's somebody to worship. You know, let's, let's look at all of the good things this guy does. Yeah which is fine. There's plenty of good stuff to talk about when it comes to Napoleon's skills and attributes and and his life. But equally, there's a lot of stuff that he does, that he says, um, that he inflicts on people that isn't okay. And it's it's yeah. that challenge of trying to cover both bases at the same time. Uh, I want to, and again, there's a lot we don't have time to discuss here, unfortunately, but I want to begin with the Italian campaign. This is one of the kind of where he gets his name i would think because Ooh, you want to skip the, too long do you uh sorry sorry but i don't know how much time you have but i do want should we do like this. two lines on too long so, uh, so we can the... do a little recap in between if you don't mind so we, yeah a little recap of leading up to the italian campaign of course yeah so uh, i mean there's a there's a lot to get through before you get to the italian campaign mm. that's why i kind of think we should perhaps just yeah. dwell very briefly on, on how he gets to the Italian campaign. Because by the time he's doing the Italian campaign, we're talking 1796, and he's a full general. Um, so the ultra-potted version is 1789, the French Revolution happens, and everything changes for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, completely new, it becomes increasingly was, radical. So, I'm sorry, sorry, I was skipping a little bit. Mixing in my head a little don't bit worry mate so, don't worry you, yeah. you, you've got to manage a podcast normally yeah. i have to do your job and it's <laughs> yeah. it's the hard job that most yeah. people don't recognize now exactly. i'm on the other end yeah. of the mic so i can i can kind of relax <laughs> a little bit in a, in a yeah. different kind of way um so yeah 1789 you get a sea change with time it, there's a lot of the revolution becomes increasingly radical but by the end of it uh well by the end of the first phase of it um the king has been executed Um, And you've got a different approach to how people can get on in society. And that that Mm. this is an ultra simplification. But that um, that that process is basically if you show competence, if you show dedication, if you show commitment to the cause, 
you will get on in French society rather than the previous system, which is, are you from inverted commas, good stock? And by good stock, they're talking about, are you rich? Are you well connected? Um, are you somebody who who is one of the haves in society? Mm. Um, now, that gives Napoleon opportunities to prove himself because people are looking for people who are dedicated, people who are competent, people who can command. And Napoleon can do those things in spades. Mm. And he proves that when he's sent to Toulon. He's still relatively junior when he's sent to Toulon, which has risen up um, against French control because the revolution basically sort of descends into a, a civil war in its own right within France um, and he's given command of the artillery. He basically has to reorganize the artillery because it's an absolute pig's ear. The British have um, sailed in to, and this is going to be depicted incorrectly, I think within um, the the context of the film, but the British have sailed in when the, mm. the town rises up. Um, they are very pleased at the prospect of being able to take a huge chunk of the French Mediterranean fleet, which is why Toulon is so important. Um, and they're occupying this place and doing a bit of a bad job of kind of planning for contingencies yeah. because they haven't thought about the possibility that the French might succeed in this siege of Toulon. And then what yeah. the hell are you going to do with all of these ships that you're sitting here rubbing your hands about the fact that you've acquired them? Um so Napoleon very quickly identifies a weak spot in the defences, realises that if you can take that particular redoubt, then what you're able to do is dominate the harbour. He personally leads the assault, um, having organised, reorganised the artillery, and everybody's kind of stunned at the way in which he's able to source these guns and organise them and make it all happen. Um, he demonstrates incredible energy doing that, takes this redoubt, and then that enables the French to then dominate the harbour. Now in the film, you're going to see a scene, I imagine, where instantly all of the guns from Toulon's defences, wherever they might be, are turned on the British and you know, you'll get some kind of big artillery barrage and then the mm -hmm. British will run away. Not really how it happened, but by taking that redoubt, what it meant was that it was suicide to leave those ships where they were in the harbour and so the British had to kind of pull back and that's how the defences start to mm. waver and crumble. Off the back of all of that, Napoleon is able to ingratiate himself. Uh, he's writing letters to significant people within French society um, and, and the government kind of saying, you know, some of my commanders are incompetent I've got this plan of action and by talking to the right people he's able to get his plan of action implemented. Um, mm. And then when he's proven correct, inevitably he's he's raised. So he gets promoted to general of brigade um, and he's, he's placed in charge of the artillery of France's army of Italy. But then things go a little bit sour because in 1794, Robespierre falls from grace. So you've got this change of government. Now, Napoleon had managed to um, associate with some of the Robespierre supporters. So he's arrested on suspicion of being somebody who's in favour of Robespierre. He's eventually released um, about three weeks, uh, sorry, no, less than that, about two weeks later. But it does leave him quite jaded about politics. And I often describe Napoleon as being a political chameleon because my sense is that he shifts with the wind. Whichever way he feels is most likely to suit his own needs that's his ideology. That's what he's prepared to go with. 
Um, I, I want to ask as well, Miss Porter, about this that that real privileged nobility that Napoleon kind of had to work work harder than way harder. How did that change when he did? You know, like we talked about in Bernadotte, he saw a chance and became a general, and of course later the king of Sweden. But how did it really change for the nobility who were generals or or had this privileged position after the revolution? And then Napoleon kind of replace how the so chance in this and how did this affect his career with the real privileged nobility after the revolution? Um I don't think his initial I don't think the fact that Napoleon comes from minor nobility ever hurts him mm. particularly because he's shown commitment to the cause, right? Toulon mm. is a very clear indication. This is a guy who believes in France, who is prepared to work and fight hard for the advancement of the French cause and for the cause of the revolution. So the, the the challenge for a lot of the aristocracy during the revolution is questions of loyalty. Um, and can you be confident that this individual is utterly committed to the revolution and won't lead a counter-revolution? Now, when Robespierre falls, there's that fear that Napoleon might actually be part of a, a sort of counter-insurgency, if you like, in favour of Robespierre's style of government and that's why he's initially arrested but he's got other friends in other places and he's able to convince people that actually that's that's not that's not who he is um he's also given the option of um command in the excuse me in um sorry about that folks the the legacies of a, of an illness that my students managed to cough on me in the first week of the university term. Um, so he's given command of 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 an army in the Vendée, basically told to quell this uprising. He isn't happy about that because he sees it as beneath him and beneath his talents. He's basically being tasked with crowd control, a civil war, um, and he doesn't see it as being conducive to him gaining glory so he basically goes um no i'm not taking that now turning down a i don't posting, think i will exactly turning down a posting from the french government tends not to do your career prospects much good um and he spends uh, a few months sort of a sort of down and out you know he, he's basically unemployed um he at this point contemplates suicide such is the scale of his depression he thinks he's blown it and these are the sorts of moments when those lines about, you know, um, I'm destined for greatness, but my superiors only see me as a tool, um, start to have some credence. But they're only one part of the story. Mm. Um, Napoleon's big break comes with um, the fact that he saves the directory. So there's this famous, it's another myth, we're going to see it in the film, this whiff of grape shot scene where it is claimed that Napoleon is integral to the defence of the government by organising the artillery and um, firing on a crowd of protesters, predominantly women and children. There are a lot of things that you've heard there that are not actually correct. So the reality is that, yes, he is key in organising some of the defences for the government around the government buildings, um Mura is the guy who goes and acquires the artillery and there's this scene where they're literally riding hell for leather through the streets of Paris with these guns in tow 
almost running people down trying to get the guns to where they need to be on time. They do fire on the crowd, but the crowd predominantly consists of armed rebels. There are some women and children within the crowd, but um, not half as many as you're actually going to see in the film. And this is what I find really interesting and what I thought was quite encouraging about the Mm. trailers was that you were seeing the myth being played out in such a way that you were having to think about how complex Napoleon is. You know, here's a guy who guns down women and children in the street when they're protesting mm. against the government. Are you, how do you feel about that? Again, to, to the posters that you see, that he's kind of a tyrant. Is this where kind of you think that this is the, the tyranny of Napoleon that Riddlestrotting plays in? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there are much better historical examples of Napoleonic tyranny, not least what he does to the newspapers and the scale of the censorship and the the cooking of the books when it comes to Mm. some of his um, plebiscites. Again, we'll get to those another time, I'm sure. Um, But in terms of a visual depiction, that's that's going to be your best one, right? It's the most obvious point Mm. at which you can make people stop and go, oh, so he's not all cuddly, which I think is, Mm. is what's going to kind of surprise people a little bit. Now, the downside to that is that this is one of those moments where Napoleon's probably been poorly served by the history because actually the the situation was rather different. But in terms of... Of course, British propaganda as well, I imagine. British propaganda, but also really interestingly, Napoleon's own propaganda. He spins this in such a way to make his role in the saving of the government seem bigger. So this whiff of grape shot um, comment is coined a little bit later, but that firing on the crowd is something that he's able to use, not least because he's demonstrated his loyalty and he gets rewarded for it. And what does he get rewarded with? He gets rewarded with a posting to the French army in Italy. And that leads us to, of course, the Italian campaign. But I wanted that gives his name. And I want to talk a little bit about crossing the Alps for a second because it was... I don't believe it was much different. Maybe the roads were a little better, but Crossing I don't believe it was later, that. Mate. Yeah. So, so I... Napoleon conducts a few yeah. campaigns in northern yeah. Italy. So the crossing of the Alps is um, in the run-up to Marengo. <laughs> so yeah. when he crosses the um, St. Bernard Pass for the second Italian campaign, the first Italian campaign, he's basically parachuted in to an army that's on its last legs. Mm. Um, they're they're low on supplies, the troops are in rags, uh, some of them haven't even got shoes, and he's somehow got to take this army on the offensive in northern Italy, where um, he's fighting Piedmont and Austria. And over the course of a year, Napoleon wins something like 18 battles, takes over 100,000 prisoners, um, 170 standards, Within weeks, he forces Piedmont to sue for peace. Um, He also forces the Austrians to their knees. They cannot find a way to deal with him. Now, some of those battles are very seat of the pants. And you see this through a lot of Napoleon's career, actually. There are a lot of moments, and this is part of why his story is, is so exciting and kind of has that seductive air to it. Because if you're looking for excitement in terms of a guy's story look no further you know the number of times in which these these events are sort of hanging on a knife edge um Mm. is incredible but um he is able to 
use his army with remarkable efficiency to strike, pivot, outflank, strike again. He's constantly keeping the Austrians guessing. And that's Mm. how he gets this nickname, the Italian whirlwind, through that ability to keep hammering them. Um, And eventually they're forced to sue for peace. And this is part of um, the success for the French in in the War of the First Coalition. It's not the only reason for French success. Mm. And this is the danger that from this point on, a lot of people start to tell the story of France and the French Revolution solely through the eyes of Napoleon. Napoleon is just one general on what is regarded as the least important Mm. front and probably the least likely to generate success. But actually, what he's able to do is create a new republic, a new state within northern Italy, Mm. which he sort of does with a little bit of backing, but it's retrospective backing from the French government because he effectively starts deciding French government policy by establishing mm. this this republic. And um, <laughs> the, the government kind of has to look at it and go, well, we could chastise him for it, but he's winning all of these victories. He's ridiculously good at propaganda because Napoleon is able to sell this image of victorious general mm. back home for his own benefit. Um, so, you know, if we start criticising him and start chastising him for what he's doing, that that looks bad when it comes mm. to popular opinion. So I think we'll just rubber stamp these these things that he's sending. He, he's way. kind of doing what Caesar did in Gaul, isn't he? To compare, he's kind of really legitimate writing. Maybe not the Gallic Wars, but in, in, in Italy, but still, he's kind of doing what Caesar is doing. He's protecting himself in this image, so he can't be a scapegoat in a sense. Napoleon is an absolute genius with propaganda, uh, whether it's inspiring his men, whether it's, excuse me, whether it's inspiring his men, whether it's um, trying to to get the public on side. Napoleon knows how to spin better than almost anybody. The, the truth is a nebulous concept that he can play fast and loose with for his own ends. And he does it ridiculously well. He knows how to motivate people. He knows how to get inside their heads. He knows that victories mm. are popular. He knows that rousing speeches will get people fired up and he knows what to say and when. And he uses it to his full advantage throughout his rise and after. Mm. I want to bring this up. I don't remember exactly when this was, but there was talk about Napoleon going to Turkey and train Turkish troops. And I want to know if he if he had would have done this, would history have been any different or would it come back and still have conquered half of Europe, or would you think history would have been any different? This is a really good question. I'm now trying to remember precisely at what point um, this idea is put forward, um, because if it's <laughs> if it's around the time that he's talking about going out to Egypt, mm. then you can very easily kind of say, okay, well, you just replace Egypt with um the this sort of adventure out to Turkey where he starts training Turkish tricks, but I'm not sure that it is. I've got a feeling it's one of the options he's considering when he's in Paris basically without yeah. a job. Um and I'm pretty sure somebody will probably correct me on the dates, but I'm pretty sure it's from that point. Now if it is, then it's pre-Italian campaign. The Italian campaign is what mm. properly makes Napoleon's name. Mm. So Napoleon doesn't get that opportunity to sell himself. So, you know, let's say he becomes a leading knight in 
the Ottoman army. Where's he going to go with that? Go to war with mm. Russia? Um, I mean, great, but you'd be talking about a need for a, a root and branch reform of the Ottoman forces. All we can do is speculate. Um, obviously, history ends up being very different, but what you would get is still the the Brumaire coup. Um, yeah. So you would still get somebody toppling the French government in 1799. It's just mm. a question of who that somebody might be. Mm. But let's talk about Egypt and after the Italian campaign, because Egypt is a fascinating piece. And of course, we have to bring it up. It's because of the Napoleon in Egypt that we have the infamous Rosetta Stone that, of course, because of course it is in the British Museum right now. But Yeah, but that's because British love because to take of... shiny things and stick them in yeah. our museum. And then when people go, look, <laughs> this this is ours. Can we have it back? We sort of go, yeah. That's, no, that's, that's a so. challenge right now. Um, you can come and have a look. We've got it on display. Would you like to yeah. look? We can we can give you a, a quick look at it if you like, yeah. but send it back to you. Mm, no, we, we've looked after it for a long time, so we're going to hold on to it. Yeah. And then, of course, I feel like it's worth mentioning that the Rosetta Stone was found because of the Napoleon's campaign in Egypt. Just a little fun fact to add, but let's Indeed. talk about Egypt is such a fascinating, of course, we'll see this in the movie, that, and as historians have pointed out, it did not take place, the Battle of the Pyramids did not take place in the, at the pyramid, but six kilometers or so away from the pyramid, but still called the Battle of the Pyramids. And, I, and again, in Egypt is such a fascinating part of Napoleon's life. We spoke about this in yeah, over a year ago now with, with Eugene Rogan. I think genuinely after the... And, and I started for rambling, but he did genuinely try to improve Egypt as well. When he was there, he did genuinely try to do good in Egypt. But let's talk, I'm getting ahead of myself, but still let's talk about Napoleon in Egypt. Napoleon's Egyptian adventure is in some parts scientific expedition. In some parts, it's an absolutely crazy plan. So the concept behind this is partly, hey, France needs more colonies. And it's partly about how do we really hammer the British? And there is this sort of bizarre plan at the heart of it all that Egypt is going to be used as a base to then strike at British India. Now, the first thing you have to do is look at a map. Um and and when you do, you realise that, sure, Egypt is part of the way, but you've got a heck of a long way to go if you're using Egypt as a base. Not least because um, the, the French have got no way, realistically, of shipping an army from Egypt to India. So you have mm. to go by the overland route. And this is where you can argue Napoleon goes kind of for Alexander the Great in terms of his vision. Because the concept is you take Egypt, you use it as a base, and then you march on India, mm. carrying the local population with you as you attempt to, and then descending into northern India, uniting the different um, principalities against the British and forcing them out, causing catastrophic damage to British trade and the prestige of the empire. It's a nice idea, but when you look at the practicalities, it's absolutely potty. There was no way, realistically, that it was going to work because you're talking about going through places like Afghanistan, known as the graveyard of empires 
or would mm. go on to be known as the graveyard of empires. Um, you're talking going through Iran, then Persia. You, these are, mm. are places that do not take kindly to foreign armies just sort of casually marching in. Violating There's a reason it's called the graveyard of empires. Let's put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an insane plan. I mean, marks out of 10 for ambition, sure. But in terms of realism, it, it was never going to work out. It, it just we wasn't. We should bring up as well that one of the reasons Napoleon wanted Egypt was, of course, the Suez Canal, I believe, and which was the way to India, which would weaken, I believe, if it got the Suez Canal, which was quite new at the time, he would have weakened the British Empire. So if he was able to get to India, the British Empire would, of course, be weakened as well. So with Suez, it's it's a French idea. Um, mm. And it's and it's an idea that's born out of the mm. occupation of Egypt, so post-conquest. Right. Um, and it doesn't become a reality for decades to come. You know, in, in terms of the mm. logistics, it's a huge engineering um task to, it has been to tried before we should add as well but it had had indeed um but at that point in time um it's it's something that the french start to very seriously look at once they've managed to to gain control in terms of that that process of gaining control it's not particularly complex uh, with the best one in the world the um the mamluk army isn't a match for no. a very well disciplined um french force but of course napoleon ends up being marooned out in um <laughs> excuse me out in egypt courtesy of a certain horatio nelson the british admiral who um mm. attacks the the french med fleet or the the troops that are that, sorry the, the ships that are supporting um napoleon's convoy from the french mediterranean fleet um at the battle of abakir bay better known as the battle of the nile and that completely annihilates Napoleon's naval support, catastrophically damages um, the the French fleet in the Med, takes out a, a significant portion of it, and it basically leaves Napoleon marooned out there. He can't get supplies in because the French now haven't got the um, mm. the ships to protect a supply convoy and, and a reinforcement convoy. So he knows he is out there with a dwindling force. Um, he mm. sort of tries to begin fighting his way out um partly because unsurprisingly the um the ottomans um aren't hugely pleased that their vassal state has just been summarily toppled by mm. the french um so he launched launches this sort of preemptive strike knowing that war is coming up into um uh, what we would today call the holy land um that doesn't go particularly well beset by plague um there's a very nasty incident where a bunch of prisoners are executed and if you're in favor of napoleon you will turn around and argue well these prisoners had given their word that they've they'd previously previously been prisoners they've been released and they've given their, their word as part of that release that they wouldn't fight the french anymore also the french were struggling to supply themselves with food so what the hell was he meant to do with these prisoners that's certainly napoleon's line um he he has this sort of angry outburst you know what am i meant to do with these men why have you brought them to me but equally when somebody surrenders and then you have them executed two thousand of them Mm. it is not a good look so again it's one of those moments we're probably not going to see this in the film i'll be Mm. surprised um (laughs) but it's it's one of those moments where 
Napoleon doesn't come out smelling roses from this. It's one, another mm. one of those moments where it's a Machiavellian decision, and sometimes Machiavellian decisions are troubling. That attempt to gain a foothold in the um, the Near East doesn't work. Um, he's eventually forced back. He isn't able to um, successfully kind of anchor himself. He's short of supplies, short of men. So he has to cut and run back to Egypt. And it's at that point that he has to start seriously thinking about his future um, and start mm. considering, are his interests best served out in Egypt? Or considering the unrest that's happening back in uh, France, is it more beneficial for him to go back to France as this sort of conquering hero? Because he's still been cultivating that image. You know, he's able to send some of these mm. artifacts back to Paris. He's able to um, send back reports on what he has been doing. He has set himself up as kind of this vassal. He's demonstrated the ability of leadership out in this new French colony. Um, he's quelled unrest. He's demonstrated he can be a strong man. He's obviously got battlefield success. Um, can he use that to capitalize and therefore take control of the French government? Mm. And so that, he does exactly that. He he literally abandons his army. No, he does for, say, "I'm sorry uh, for interrupting is, you again." Yeah, but, but there's I want to wind back a little bit before the Napoleon Egyptian campaign because there was someone I want to introduce that I rather forgot about. Introducing and that is a lady that we've seen also that's rather known as Josephine and I'm I have mixed feelings about her because I'm she was a, what we call an opportunist or what I like to call today a gold digger I'm a right in calling her that because she the she is rather an interesting figure to and how let's talk about how she is introduced to Napoleon and their relationship of course how and when money goes into the Italian campaign. It's already the Egyptian campaign, but we we are going to go back to his return. But I want to, of course, talk about their relationship, which of course is essential in the movie as well. It is um, the slightly troubling thing about the way in which this movie has been um, advertised is that they seem to be making out that everything Napoleon ever did was purely to please Josephine. Mm. So, you name it. It's because of Josephine and because of Napoleon trying to win Josephine's affection, which frankly does a disservice to Napoleon, his drive, his ability um, and his vision, because Napoleon was very much his own man. Yes, there was definitely friction and tension, especially early on in his relationship with Josephine. Um, There is absolutely no question that Napoleon was way more into Josephine than Josephine was into mm. Napoleon for much of the Did... early part of their marriage. But there are reasons for that. Um, was Josephine a gold digger? I feel for Josephine. I think she's placed in a very difficult situation. And it's easy to look she at... She was an opportunist, definitely. She was. She was certainly an opportunist. But that's a situation that I think to a large degree is forced upon her. Her husband gets executed during the French Revolution. Mm. She gets guillotined, which therefore means that she's in this incredibly dangerous situation with children where she needs to find a way to survive. Because if she's not careful, she's going to be in the street as a beggar. And how does she support her kids? How does she survive day to day? She's facing an incredibly bleak future. She ends up um, becoming the mistress of Barris. 
which ultimately is how um, uh, Josephine and Napoleon meet. Um, and part of that relationship is that Barris supports Josephine financially. That therefore enables her to enjoy the finer things in life. It also enables her to support her family. Um, and Josephine does like the finer things in life. Make mm. no mistake about that. Um, but then Barris decides to take up a new mistress, um, which basically means he casts Josephine aside. She's basically rubbish. His attitude is, I've finished with you. I am no longer going to support you financially. But I have good news for you. There's this young up and coming guy. He's called Napoleon. Great guy. You go and marry him. He'll be able to support you financially and then it'll all be fine. So Josephine basically gets used as um, almost like a a reward, like a bauble that gets mm. dangled in front of Napoleon. You know, well done for, because this, this happens in the around the time of the Whiff mm. of Grape Shop um, thing. Well done, Napoleon. Here's your reward. Here's a lady that you can go and marry. Now, Napoleon is absolutely smitten with Josephine. If you read... We, we should mention her teeth as well. They're not very appealing. She was appealing in look, and like, I'm not sure about personality, but her teeth pretty much described as being the biggest appalling thing about her. Yeah, this this is a thing that um, gets mentioned a lot. Um, sure, her teeth were in a bad state, but it didn't seem to put Napoleon off. Um, so mm-hmm. when you look at those love letters, he was absolutely that they're agonizing. I find them mm. agonizing to read because it is so obvious that he has fallen head over heels in an almost kind of teenage way. There's a, there's a sort of an almost naive vulnerability about Napoleon in the way in which he writes to Josephine, which in one sense mm. you can go, well, look, this is awfully sweet. Um, and in another sense, you kind of look at it and go, the guy is needy as hell. Um, mm. Part of the reason that he will have become so needy is because it would have been painfully obvious to him that Josephine was not returning his affections. It said that his love letters went unopened. Um, Josephine had had multiple lovers pre-marriage, mm. and she continued but, most. But let's not pretend that Napoleon did not have affairs as well outside Absolutely. Their, Absolutely. their marriage. This is the thing that they both. They both give as good as they get. Napoleon later, um, but by the time he's going on the Egypt expedition, he is um, chasing other officers' wives um, and having affairs and, and is being quite brazen about it. Um, we are going to see a lot of Hippolyte Charles, I think, in the film, kind of cast as one of the two mm. main, inverted commas, bad guys of the the whole thing, you know, because... Mm. This uh, is being overplayed to the point where um, the guy's actually seen in the coronation scene, which is just odd because it wasn't an issue by that point. Um, but it's it's a very convenient hook to tag everything on for storytelling purposes, because, again, mm. the film is about entertainment. So you are going to see a lot of him in the film flirting outrageously with Vanessa Kirby's Josephine. Sure, they did carry on um for much of the um time that napoleon was on the italian the first italian campaign but um as you say you know napoleon has multiple mistresses over the course of his life um marie Vlevska being most obvious one and the reason the marriage breaks down is <coughs> excuse me in part because josephine 
can't have kids by this point. Mm. Um, and initially, Napoleon thinks it might be. I'm sure we're going to come him. back to this in part two. Oh, yeah, we course. will do. Yeah. Um, initially, he thinks that it's him, and then he has a little, an illegitimate child. Um, and then off the back of that, he he knows that actually, you no, know, he can father kids. And so, in terms of dynasty building, uh, post becoming emperor, that becomes uh, a really key part. But there is love there when they have their um, divorce ceremony. There are these really um, heartfelt statements that they both make on behalf of one another. Um, Napoleon loves Josephine all the way through his life. It's believed. There's a lot of debate about this, but it's believed that one of the last things he says is Josephine's name. Um, mm. But yeah, Josephine, she loved to spend money. There's there's one point where she is buying pretty much the equivalent of one hat per day. Mm. Um, now you go, well, it, it's a hat, but you know this is the 19th century. She's married to the leader of the French government by this point. The, these are going to be nice hats and with mm. the best will in the world, how many hats does one person honestly need in their life? Mm. So sure, she loves to spend money. Um, it gets very awkward. Napoleon has to have a conversation with um, the the debtors because she's run up such vast debts. And he basically says, look, I'll pay half and you'll keep quiet about this. And they agree because it's the only way they're going to get any money um, out mm. of the whole thing. And it does irritate him. Um, sure, she's she's not you know careful with her finances, put it that way. But I think there's a lot of demonization of Josephine. There's this sort of assumption that she should have been um, as devoted to Napoleon as Napoleon was to her. And it's just a sad reality of life. This was a marriage of convenience. Mm. It was an arranged marriage. And is it really that surprising that under the circumstances, she wasn't that keen? Yeah. And I think because she's a woman, we love to point the finger a lot more at mm. her affairs and then sort of yeah. in, in the process do what the opposite of what we've done in this, which is kind of, you know, we've kind of turned around and said, well, look, they're both at it. And I think quite often that gets pushed to the side, you know, that kind of not tonight mm. Josephine mentality as if she's kind of this crazed nymphomaniac. The age difference is also often made out to be a big thing because there's about five years between them, which is bizarre. I mean, that's emphasize. normal. Five years is not uncommon. Even today, by the standards, it's nothing. And by the standards of the day, if you were a man, it wouldn't be unusual for you to be in your 30s mm. or 40s marrying somebody who was just coming out of their teens. Mm. So again, there's this kind of double standard of morality yeah. that's being thrown at Josephine just because she's a woman. Um, there was someone that we don't have to talk equally alone about her, but there was another woman in his life that would later again marry Bernadotte and do rather well as the Queen of Sweden, which is Desiree. Rather was oh, she right. was actually quite fun fun of Napoleon and I do believe that he broke her heart as well. But why would why did not Desiree and Napoleon happen? Um Napoleon's Napoleon treats Desiree pretty awfully, actually. Um he regards her as something of an improvement project. He doesn't feel that she's reading the right thing, so he instructs her on what she should be reading and, and how she should be dressing. Napoleon can be, I mean, not particularly surprising for a dictator. He can be quite controlling. Um, Josephine didn't actually prefer to go by the name Josephine. She preferred to go by the name Rose, but Napoleon comes along and changes that. No, you're going to be Josephine. Um, there's a lot of speculation about whether or not that Josephine fixation is actually a fixation with Napoleon's brother, Joseph, and whether there's sort of a, a mm. brother thing a brother mm. complex um kind of going on there you can 
speculate with that for as long as you like. Um, she she has a horrible life, actually. She doesn't want to go with Bernard Ott, uh when he becomes mm. King of Sweden. She hates the life out there. She wants to go back to France. They separate. It's She's one of the really tragic stories of the the Napoleonic period amongst the hierarchy. Obviously, there are there are plenty of you know individual personal mm-hmm. tragedies for people who who lose loved ones over the course of these wars. But her her story is pretty awful. You know, she basically gets kind of pushed in the direction of Bernadotte. There you go. I, I don't want this woman anymore. You know, Bernadotte, you have her. Um, yeah, it, it's a, a really sad story, but. Napoleon feels that he can do better. And, and of course, Josephine comes along and, as we've said, he is absolutely smitten. Mm. So let's talk about his return and he taking power. And I, I wanted to say that, of course, it's a, I felt, wanted to derail a little bit because I felt that the woman in Napoleon's life was important as well to talk about. And when when it comes to coronation, I wanted as well to talk about his family because, in my view, they are kind of like real life Dickens character, aren't they? The family of Napoleon. And I want to talk about them and how they want to profit from everything as well when he takes power, because it's really kind of that they are want to do as little as possible and enjoy life as well when he takes power and have benefit as much as they can from it. One of Napoleon's uh, is there a profanity filter on this podcast? I, I don't think that. Go ahead. Okay, so I'll be gentle (laughs) with our listeners, just in case there are any younger viewers um, or listeners tuning in. But some of his family are absolute arseholes, and his sister in particular is an absolute bitch, a grade A bitch. Um, The one who marries Murat. um, Like I said, they are Dickens characters. Like you think you would be Dickens. Yeah, yeah, just just awful. Caroline Bonaparte, oh my God. Awful, absolutely awful. Um, yes, so Napoleon's rise to power. So you've got two phases of this. The first is, and I think this this complexity will um, be ignored in the film, but you've got the coup, the Brumaire coup in 1799, and then you've got Napoleon being crowned emperor in December 1804. And so actually, obviously... I want to, I'm sorry, sorry interrupting you again, but there's a little fun fact I want to add to this, and I'm sure... You know this, but there was a, a a Colombian guy that was in Paris at the time, and he saw he was a big fan of Napoleon up until he was crowned emperor, but he lost respect for him at the time. And I'm sure you know who I'm talking about because that guy was later Simon Bolivar, who would of course conquer South America. And I feel like they have kind of a parallel story. They're kind of the same, Bolivar and Napoleon, which is both rise to greatness and then both kind of end the same way so i feel like there is a lot of parallel it's just a little fun fact i wanted to add but again i would feel like there is a parallel with bolivar and napoleon i mean napoleon's probably more successful bolivar's life is fascinating um the the political situation out in south america is so complex Mm. um and the amount of kind of full starts and and sort of um the, the the rise and fall and then rise again and then fall again it's it's incredible it's it's probably a on a personal level it's probably a more dramatic epic than even Napoleon's mm. life yeah um, but they do have kind of parallels you know in a sense just different continents on different scale so there there's there's a lot of um, there are a lot of attempts to sort of create Napoleons of other places yeah, um, yeah. and you, you could make an argument that um, 
perhaps Bolivar is the Napoleon of of South America. Um, but yeah, there are there are parallels. Um, you you can draw parallels with quite a few people across this time mm. period, can't you? Um, but yes, the he so Napoleon actually irritates quite and disillusions quite a lot of people um, when he becomes emperor. Another very famous one is Ludwig van Beethoven, who mm, yeah um, he wrote a take, sonnet for him, didn't he? And then he tore it apart when. He, he wrote himself a, emperor. Yeah, a symphony. I believe it's Eroica. Yeah. Um was actually that I would need to double check that. I've got in my head it's symphony number three, but then I had a conversation with yeah, I'm, I'm a sure it music be, that's not that important. Um who who kind of made me question that. But yes, he, he wrote a piece of music, dedicated it to Napoleon. Then when he heard the news that Napoleon had crowned himself emperor, just took his pen and scratched out Napoleon's name in absolute disgust <laughs> um, because it was seen as a portrayal of the principles of the revolution. But let's rewind a little bit. So 1799, the Brumaire coup, it nearly goes yeah. catastrophically wrong and very nearly ends up with Napoleon dead. He is physically <laughs> assaulted. So there are, there are two chambers that he um, has to address. And it, so the, the Council of the Ancients and um the the 500 um and what he does initially he plays this very carefully and it's it's a group um a, a group planned thing it's not just napoleon and that gets missed you know everybody talks about it being napoleon's coup actually they consider multiple possibilities as the nominal leader of this coup napoleon is the one who comes out on top and the plan is that they force the um the government to uh, move to the outskirts of Paris, where they're away from the Parisian mob, which therefore means they don't have the support of the mob, which therefore means they're easier to control. Um, you then surround it with troops that are loyal to Napoleon. Uh, Murat, funnily enough, is is out there uh, in the midst of all of this. Um, and Napoleon, basically, having got these guys out there with the, the sort of false um, claim of a, a Jacobin conspiracy turns around to them and effectively tells them it's over. Um, he he tells the ancients and they aren't convinced and they tell him to get lost. He then tries with the, the Council of the 500 and gets assaulted, um, narrowly escapes. Um, and the only reason that this whole thing is successful is thanks to his brother, Lucian, who very dramatically um, draws his ceremonial dagger um and says you know if my brother is a traitor then i will kill him myself um and that sort of calms everybody down a little bit and then the message is sent out to bring in the troops quick this is going horribly wrong we need to get these guys out and they basically forcibly clear the chambers um napoleon bungles his initial speech um he had actually had a riding accident a few days before and so a historian ed Koss has um, raised the possibility that part of the reason why he bungles this so badly might have been that he was still recovering from the the resulting brain injury. He'd been unconscious for a heck of a long time. Um, but in any case, um, one of the, the members of the, the government shouts, but what about the revolution? And Napoleon basically says, look, the revolution's over. You betrayed that revolution multiple times. Mm. Get out. And so what they installed is something called the consul system. There are meant to be three consuls that rotate. Funnily enough, that rotation never actually happens. 
and um, you get in 1801 a plebiscite that confirms was a plebiscite actually for mm. the the Brumaire coup. Um, there's also one, um, <coughs> excuse me, for the uh, declaration of first consul for life, and then there's another one for the conversion of consul for life to emperor. Now we talked earlier about sort of inverted commas election rigging. This is a an odd one because there was plenty enough support amongst the French population for each of these moves. And and that's Mm. an important point to emphasize. And yet the books still get cooked. So in departments, people are adding zeros on the ends of, um, Mm. on the ends of returns in favor, just because they can literally inflating them by a proportion of 10. You also get um, people kind of going, okay, look, there are 30 votes against, we're going to reduce that down to four for no obvious reason Mm. um the entirety of the army and bear in mind that france has a large standing army at this point in time the entirety Mm. of the army is assumed to have voted in favor people who vote against are inverted commas encouraged to change their minds um you've also got a public voting system where you know you can add additional peer pressure onto it so it's not sort of the great example of democracy that people sometimes um, like to make out. He would have got all of these um, measures comfortably over the line without the corruption. But nonetheless, it does show that Napoleon has a vision for a right answer. And if you're not prepared to go along with that right answer, then there are consequences. And if I don't get the right answer, then I'll just make it up until I do get the answer that I want. Um, mm. It is a dictatorship and it's important to remember that. So let's let's talk about recognition. How many countries after Napoleon's problem actually recognized Napoleon as an emperor? Emperor, from, Because it's important to get, of course, in the new regime, you need the recognition as well for from other empires or other countries. So how... Many people recognise Napoleon and the new regime in France. Well, this is the unending debate. Um, and Michael Brewers talks about this and kind of questions whether or not, Michael Brewers being one of the, the leading historians on Napoleon, um, questions whether or not there there was a willingness to accept the inverted commas Bonaparte regime as legitimate. Um, bear in mind that in 1801, Britain <coughs> finally agrees to the Peace of Amiens. That then crumbles in 1803, um, so before the whole coronation situation. Mm. But what it means is that there is a willingness to work with the French government with Napoleon at the helm. Um, mm. And that's something that is often contested um, because there's a certain irony here, isn't there, that the Bourbons have been toppled by the French government, and then the French government has, in time, gone through a series of kind of convoluted spirals and somersaults, and then gone back to what is basically a hereditary monarchy. That's all the the empire is, just under a different name. Napoleon is king, but with a different title. He's emperor instead. Um, and he is, sure, the inverted commas, course can upstart. Does that mean that people won't work with him? No. They will absolutely work with him because what the European nations want, what they crave, what they all need is stability. By 1804, 
excuse me, by 1804, there's been more than a decade of conflict on the continent. Europe is already exhausted by this conflict. But wait, there's with... more coming. Exactly. You know, you've got a whole day. Spoiler alert, you've got 11 more years <laughs> to come. Um, so I disagree with this idea that because Napoleon wasn't from a particular, from a, a long-standing dynasty, that the other nations mm. of Europe weren't willing to work with him. I believe that it's actually the case mm. based on the reactions that you see and what it is that pushes these other nations into conflict. It's Napoleon's insistence on carving out a France that is so dominant that it destabilizes the balance of power to the point where the other nations simply can't tolerate the humiliation because you either basically accept Napoleon as the de facto overlord of everything that happens in Europe and forget your own country's interests yeah. or you go to war. And in the in the biography, Adam Sam I'm sorry, I say his name wrong. Adam Samoski, he argues that there were when we speak about new dynasties, there were the, the dynasties that at the time they weren't that old. The Habsburgs were quite new. The Hanoverians have only ruled for quite a while in England, England, and you know the even at the time the Russian Romanovs they weren't quite that old at that time. So there were quite new dynasties ruling and of course in Sweden you had the the, the king been thrown out in the, I'm not don't remember when but still it was quite new dynasties. They weren't that ancient as people like to make it out to believe that at the time. So one of the oldest dynasties during this period sits on the throne of Spain. Uh, mm. the Bourbon dynasty is is amongst the oldest that's left at this point. Um and what's Spain during, doing for much of this period, all the way up, in fact, to uh, 1808, when Napoleon just decides to stab his ally in the back, reluctant ally though they were, um, they're, they're allied to France. So, you know, there's a, a nation that is prepared to work with France. Mm. Um, so you can understand, <laughs> but again, it kind of taps into this image that we're going to see of the film, of, you know, poor Napoleon, he's the outcast um he's he's the upstart and nobody's willing to work with him and it's all a conspiracy against napoleon this is a line that the ultra pro napoleon fans love to push that napoleon is is the victim in all of this he's a man of peace he doesn't want war which respectively is absolute codswallop because napoleon is brilliant at war mm. so good at it to the point where he can win a war, but not win the peace. And so in those situations where you've got the option of, I can try and pursue a diplomatic solution, or I can go to war, he's going to back himself with war because he knows he's got the mm. skills to win. And that, that's part of the challenge, really, with Napoleon, because he's kind of a victim of his own success on the battlefield, because he is so capable on the battlefield that it means that he can dictate any kind of peace terms that he wants to. That therefore mm. means there is less inclination to compromise. He's got his enemies by the balls, quite frankly, when it comes to the, the points where they are negotiating. And that therefore means that he takes too much. He asks for too much. And then, as we said, that destabilizes the balance of power. And that therefore makes the prospect of war 
that much more likely. There were points at which he could have established a particularly um, if he'd been less ambitious with the the continental system um, in 1807. There were points at which he could have had his peace in Europe and where his dynasty could have survived. But by pushing for too much, it meant that other nations basically had the choice of take the humiliation or sit on it. That bred resentment that then in turn leads to war. And eventually those wars have take their toll. I think we're going to run it after. I'm going to take a look next week after the Napoleon campaign. Another episode, because it's on Wednesday, 22nd November, that the movie will be released. I'm releasing the second part on the day of the premiere. So you can listen to the both parts on the day of the premiere and then go and enjoy Napoleon and judge it for yourself. So before we go, do you have anything you want to promote or any social media where people might find you if they have or want to learn more about Napoleon or have any questions that we did not discuss in this episode? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter. Uh, yes, I still call it Twitter at Zed White History. Um, you can also catch my podcast where I talk about this kind of stuff all the time. Uh, the Napoleonic Wars podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, you name it. There's my YouTube channel, the Napoleonic Wars channel. Does what it says on the tin, basically. Uh, and I'm also the chair of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wargraves charity an organisation that I set up in 2021 mm. that tries to honour the memory of the ordinary men and women who died during this conflict by restoring veteran graves, mm. um, repairing them where necessary, cleaning them, but also making sure that those who were disturbed through archaeological processes or um, any other, um, you know, through no fault of their own, uh, those who are disinterred actually get the dignity of a burial in the ground in a marked grave which is not something that is the norm um, most of the time these people are kind of either stuck on display or they are mm. stuck um in a storage box because nobody really knows quite how to deal with this situation and so we go in and try and make the case and provide the financial support mm. and logistical support to get these people their place in the earth um, so that they can in fact rest in peace and you are working on a, a book as well, I believe, about the prime in, during the Napoleonic era, I think, if I remember correctly. Absolutely right. So I did my doctorate at Southampton University. Um, it's it's a very slow burn, that book. It, it needs more writing needs to happen. But mm-hmm. yes, I am. Um, my specialism was crime and punishment in the British Army during the, during the Napoleonic era. Um, and at some point that will eventually results in a book uh, if you do want a book that's already done um, i edited the sword and the spirit uh, which was a set of conference um papers basically that were produced um at a conference that i organized in 2019 the first chapter of which actually is on napoleon's mental states and considers the possibility that he had something called narcissistic personality disorder which has a lot of implications for um, how we might interpret some of Napoleon's actions. We can perhaps talk about that a little bit more next time. Yeah. But um, the results for that were staggering. A lot of people sort of sometimes turn around and go, well, this is hugely problematic. They were very careful in how that assessment was done. A team of um, US Army psychologists worked with a leading historian to assess a huge range of information. They actually went looking for PTSD, not signs of narcissism, 
And it was just what fell out of the research that led them towards the possibility, and that is worth emphasizing, it is a possibility, but the indicators are there that Napoleon may have had narcissistic personality disorder. Thank you so much for coming on. I cannot wait to record part two and for you to listen to part two or the movie itself. I'm really looking forward to this and it's going to be so much fun. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you wrote a review of our podcast and try to read it if I see it on our podcast as well. If you're on Spotify, give us five stars. And if you're on YouTube, please like, share and subscribe. My name is Adam. Stay tuned for part two. Also check out some other episodes we have. I'm fairly sure you'll find something that you like. Please like, share and subscribe and I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.